In 2018, a report from the Colorado Health Institute termed the opioid epidemic in the state the crisis of our generation. Now, three years later, that crisis still continues unabated. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. Since 1999, the death rates from opioid painkillers and heroin overdose has been a constant trend upward and has quadrupled. In pre-pandemic 2019, over 80 deaths a month were due to drug overdose. In 2020, that climbed to over 120 each month. Into that situation, COVID-19 has contributed to stresses of isolation at home, financial and family stress, exposed our deficit of coping skills, and a reduction in the therapy support due to state funding reductions and cuts. Observers are indicating in this behavioral health crisis, it's easier to obtain drugs and alcohol than a therapist. Into this situation steps the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. One of the organization's founders and its executive director is from the Skag School of Pharmacy, Dr. Robert Vallick. Because it's definitely a mess. You know, we have a lot of, of, unfortunately, people dying from overdoses, a record number last year in Colorado, over 1,300 um, Coloradans died of drug overdoses last year, the highest number on record. Uh, and the majority of those are opioid-related, not all of them. But, uh, you know, and how people end up either overdosing and dying or even a lot more people who might be not dying but in treatment or needing treatment or people who are sort of heading down that road, unfortunately, because they've been on opioids a long time or, or they're non-medically using them. And so it's like a, like, kind of like an iceberg. You know, we see the tip of the iceberg with the 1,300 overdoses, which is a lot, but it's even bigger what's underneath the surface and all of the opioids that are still being prescribed, like you said, that people are still, I think, the, the pill for every ill mentality is definitely there in our society. We medicate things much more than any other country in the world. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's good that we give medicines for heart disease or for, you know, things like that. But sometimes maybe with opioids, it's not so good if we give them out, you know, more than we probably ought to. Are we having an also an issue with semantics? And I say it like that because of framing. Um, before the crisis really started to accelerate, I don't think the general public uh, rarely referred to whatever medication they were taking as an opioid, if that was it. They may say, I got something for pain. I have a pain killer, but they never termed it opioid. And so when it comes up, their thinking may be, oh, well, that's something like heroin or something like that. I'm not doing that. I'm doing a painkiller or I'm doing right. something else. Do, do we I have a problem there with semantics? I think, there's, I think that's part of it. There's many little pieces like that, and I think that's another one of them, which is people just, they do, oh, it's, it's a painkiller. I don't think it's an opioid. That's what those are. That's like you said, that's heroin or something else like that. I'm not getting those. Or I'm getting it from my doctor, so I'm not, I'm not going to become an, you know, someone who's addicted or have that kind of problem because my doctor prescribed it for me and my pharmacy dispensed it for me, so it must be safe. It's not one of those dangerous things when we have come to find they are very dangerous if they aren't monitored really carefully and the amount that we give to people isn't minimized and give you just exactly what you need, but no more. If we give you a lot of extras, all the extras that we have been giving to people are sitting in medicine cabinets and the most common way people end up overdosing and dying from heroin is they started off with leftover opioids from a friend or family member's medicine cabinet 
and the leftovers they had from some prescription that they got. And that's the most common way that people start. 70% of people who end up in treatment or overdosing or dying started that way. And that's the most common way in. The second most common way in is people using their own leftovers. Like, well, I'm not going to use yours in your medicine camp. I'm going to use my own that I had from my wisdom tooth five years ago. You know, I'm going to use those now because my back hurts or my life sucks and I just want to feel better. And that's what people always say. It's either pain or psychological pain, but I just want to feel better and I've got these leftovers, so I'll use them. We're being our own doctors and self-prescribing our old our own old stuff again just to uh, take care of a problem which, you know, may be just for the moment. And I had no idea that we were also, that Americans were also getting uh, getting some, some painkillers and stuff like that from their cousins and next-door neighbors and things like that. So it's almost our responsibility. Exactly. I think it's all of us. I mean, yes, it maybe maybe doctors prescribe them you know, too many times and, and give too many tablets, and you really don't need to give people 60 of them after a surgery. Like I had my appendix out a year and a half ago, and they said, here, I'll give you 30 oxycodone going home. I said, how about four? You know, I don't need 30. And when I got home, I only used two of them for one day when I was kind of still in pain after the surgery. And then I was done. I was fine. I was taking Tylenol after that for about a day or two, and then I was fine. But even the two left over, I'm like, well, I don't want my kids to get into those two. Or if, what if they had given me 30 and I've got 28 left over? 28 is enough to help somebody start down the wrong path if they're just yeah. not you know, under the care of a doctor. So that's, I always say it's a shared responsibility. We want doctors to do better. We want pharmacists to counsel people better. We, but everybody has to mind the store at home and make sure they only use the opioids that they really need. And then when they're done with them, take them to the safe disposal box that we have. Get them out of your house. Don't let your neighbor, your kid, your friend, your cousin, your nephew get into those things and start down that bad pathway. Is it a situation where doctors might think of uh, when they prescribe something for a patient or the patient is under treatment, I know mine will say, well, you know, come back in and see me at this date. And maybe at that date, they should request that I bring the prescription with me. And then they check me out and I'm okay. Thank you very much. And they take the prescription and they keep it. So I don't have it anymore. Right. Some doctors do that. They ask you, I'm going to give you this prescription, you know, bring it, bring it with you with each visit so I can see how many you're taking and what you're doing. And, and they yeah. want to have that level of, of interaction, which we think is a great idea to have the doctor be, you know, thinking in that way. Just not a lot of them do. Usually it's write a prescription, here you go, and then that's the last, last the doctor thinks of it. And the patient gets it filled, and they get filled whatever the doctor wrote, and it's 30 or 60 or whatever, and they take a few, and then it's in the medicine cabinet, and the leftovers are sitting there. And unfortunately, friends and family and people get into it and it's just a it's still what we we view the biggest problem it's called the medicine cabinet problem and we think the medicine cabinet problem is still way too big so we're pushing really hard on people to store their medication safely and if it's opioids we tell people don't actually don't store them in the medicine cabinet because that's where people know that they are store them in a safe or store them somewhere hidden that you don't that you know somewhere else no no one else is going to find them in your house, except you are the only one that would know where they are because get, you know, where's the first place you would go. If I, you're going to come into my house and look for my, my, my leftover opioids, you're going to go straight to my medicine cabinet. Say, Hey, I just need yeah. to borrow your bathroom. 
just let me use the bathroom, you know, and, and they'll look through your medicine cabinet. That's what people do. I had no idea that was going on as well. Uh, is some misuse also because uh, maybe the intervals in which we're supposed to take the medication, we shorten it because all of a sudden I feel a little bad in between time, so it's okay if I take another one right right now. And then something else said, oh, it's okay, and we shorten the intervals. And when we shorten the interv- the intervals, then we start to become addicted. There's a, there is a little bit of that. Um, it's, it's, again, one of those many, all these issues each contribute, you know, to this problem. And pain meds like those are, you know, ideally most opioids last for about eight hours. If they're long-acting, they may last 10 or 12 hours. Um, some of them, if they're inject, if, they, if someone get, you're in the hospital and you get a, a shot of morphine, that may only last four hours, but they're there to monitor your pain. And it's a, watching those intervals like that, like you say, is, is, to, is something you need to really be careful with. And just, fo- you know, that's why it's so important to follow the instructions. If a doctor says, you know, every four to six hours, then don't take it any sooner than four. Ideally, closer to six, if they tell you that 46 hours or every eight hours, don't shorten it. So you're saying read the label and follow it. <laughs> right. It sounds so simple, right? But it is. <laughs> but it's tempting. You know, folks are in pain, and I get it because, I, boy, I was, I, it hurt like heck to get the surgery. It was a minor surgery for appendicitis, but, boy, it still hurts. And coming home, you know, the, the day later, you know, you don't stay in the hospital as long as you used to. And coming home, it was still really sore. And so, yeah, for a day, I had some pretty significant pain, and I can see why people might say, hey, I really don't, I'm not a big fan of that pain. So I'm going to, when's the soonest I can take that next tablet and be tempted to take it sooner? I can see why people would be tempted, but it's so important not to, because we don't want to, we don't want to do that to our body to start pushing ourselves in the direction of, of, you know, needing more, needing more. Do we see that parents in dispensing medication to youth, they have to be very vigilant there too, because the youngsters will see where you're getting the, uh, where you're getting the medication from, and it may become time, and they'll say, oh, mom, I'll get it myself. And when that starts to happen, they too can become addicted to opioids as well. Yeah, unfortunately, that's, it's a common, the first exposure to opioids for most people is when they're about 16 years old and they get a wisdom tooth out. Third molar extraction is the most common place for people to get their first doses of an opioid in their life. Second most common is an in sports injury between ages 13 and 25 is the most common. Mm-hmm. So usually that's where people start. And those are, by definition, young people. And some of them aren't, aren't young children, but they're adolescents and teens and young adults. And that's, you're exactly right. We don't want people thinking, A, where can I get more of that? Or B, I can, I'll just take care of it because you just, you know, you never know. We just have to be really careful, and the parent wants to, to to be very careful when it's their kids, obviously, and make sure they just get what they need. Doesn't mean don't give them what they need, but don't don't let them have more. Are there indicators a parent should use uh, if a kid is on medication that they can see that maybe a problem may be developing? And they need to say, I've got a problem here. Let's get to the doctor and do something about it instead of trying to manage it themselves where some parents get into the wrong things thinking that they can do it because they don't want to tell somebody about it. Yeah, there's, it's, it's things that, you know, are, some of them are pretty for uh, pretty typical that you would say for any sort of um, what, what could be depression or it could be substance use or whatever. So kids that are disengaging not talking to you as much as they used to be or, or just, you know, staying in their room and not 
not communicating like they used to, missing school, not hanging out with their friends, not doing the things that you know that they enjoy doing, and they're not wanting to do those things, all of those are signs that could be depression or anxiety. It could be some sort of substance use problem uh, as well. So any of those that we always say, you know, be sure to talk to your doctor about that. But it's also, hey, that medication isn't working for me or I need more of it. Uh, That's just not enough. It's not helping my pain. And maybe that's true. Maybe it's not strong enough. Usually it is. But even if it isn't, that's something to say, well, let's talk to the doctor and see why this might not be working right for you. Maybe you need something else. Maybe the doctor would adjust the dose. But don't be tempted to adjust the dose um, on the request of of the child. Say, okay, let's talk to the doctor. And here's what we're experiencing. Yeah. And maybe the, maybe the doctor thinks it is a good idea to try a little bit more because they may have prescribed a low dose. But if not, um, maybe they prescribed a, a, you know, a moderate dose and they don't think you should go any higher. It's always a good idea. Talk to your doctor. Talk to your pharmacist if you have any question. I, I know you're not a psychotherapist, but be, could some of the uh, effects of opioid use uh, be contributing in some direct or indirect way to the high uh, high level of youth suicides we have in the state? We know that there is a correlation. You know, we don't know which is the, the tail and which is the dog as far as um, yeah. causing which causes what. But we do know that for those who are experiencing, um, se- you know, um, severe depression or suicide outside, suicidal thinking or suicidal behaviors, that those folks also have higher rates of you know, anxiety, higher rates of substance use, including opioids, higher rates of all those other sorts of things. So it's, it's really difficult. We want people to be aware that it could contribute or it could be a red flag, like if somebody's you know, getting into the opioids and it may be a, a, a symptom of not just, okay, you're, you're experimenting. It could be a symptom of something even much larger, like you're saying, someone who is really severely depressed and suicidal. It's possible. And so we just say any red flag like that, talk to the doctor. If you have a question, if you think it's a a yellow flag and might be a red flag and you're not even sure yet, talk to your doctor. You know, don't don't let it wait until it's till it's really severe or too late. On this edition, our subject is stemming the opioid crisis, along with ways those taking medications can keep their use safe and under control. Our guest is Dr. Robert Valick, Executive Director of the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Use Prevention. We will continue our insightful conversation with him on our next edition. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Mask up when necessary. Get the vaccine. And we do thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us.